Sifter, the podcast. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming, action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. I'm thrilled to announce that this podcast is also becoming a radio show. Starting this Friday, March 11th, the podcast will air on WRIR, Richmond's independent radio station at 97.3 FM. My weekly reviews have been airing on the station for eight years, and they'll continue. It's time for two Sifter movie reviews from TV Jerry. Plus, the Sifter website, tvjerry.com, will have links to the people or events or productions discussed in the podcast, plus some pictures. The more bad movies you watch, the more you have an appreciation for how to do something well in film. My go-to example is always that it's very difficult to see what the work of a good boom operator looks like, but a bad boom operator, it's immediately obvious. That's Catherine Coldiron, the author of a monograph examining the notoriously bad movie Plan 9 from Outer Space. She'll be here to talk about her book, the movie, and her upcoming visit to the Carytown record store of the same name. Then my first ever guest reviewer will join me to talk about the Oscars, but our discussion is not what you'd expect. Got you intrigued? Sifter Review of the Week The Tourist on HBO Max. Jamie Dornan is driving through the backcountry of Australia when he's in an accident that lands him in the hospital with amnesia. On his quest to find the truth, things quickly veer out of control. This has echoes of the Coen brothers, namely Fargo. It's stylishly shot without being arty, the tension ebbs and flows, the violence is solidly staged, and there are eccentric characters, especially Danielle McDonald as the wannabe detective, who's channeling Merritt Weaver's endearing, bumbling style. Dornan is constantly compelling as he navigates the confusion and frustration, not to mention his ever-present bulging biceps. The narrative continues to surprise, and the direction is always assured, creating an eminently watchable crime mystery that will grab your rapt attention from the beginning. I gave it five out of five stars. Plan 9. Ah, yes. Plan 9 deals with the resurrection of the dead. Long-distance electrode shot into the pineal pituitary glands of recent dead. I'm happy to be talking with Catherine Coldiron, who has written a monograph about Plan 9 from Outer Space. You just heard a clip from that, the classic, which, of course, I'm assuming, I'm hoping everybody is hip enough to know what Plan 9 from Outer Space is. Footnote. Plan 9 from Outer Space is a 1959 film by Ed Wood that's considered by many to be the Citizen Kane of bad movies. First of all, Catherine, obviously in your book, you pointed out to me that there is a memory from Charlottesville. See, I'm going to read this line. You said, a memory I can't disconnect from Plan 9 is advertisements for a record store in Charlottesville. I lived there between ages 11 and 13, late 1992 to 95, and a very cool record store named Plan 9 operated there. A small blessing. It still operates as of this writing. The store used clips from this movie in its TV ads. So that's kind of cool. So that was how you first heard about Plan 9 before the movie, right? That's correct. And speaking of which, I have a surprise visitor. Do you see who that is? Damned. Yeah, I do see who that is. <laughs> speaking of Plan 9, Jim, welcome to the show. Footnote. Jim Bland is one of the co-founders of Plan 9 Records in Richmond and Charlottesville. 
Catherine, obviously, you know, Jim already, but uh, I thought Jim would jump in here for a minute just to say hello and also to give us a little background on Plan 9 from Outer Space, the record store, how it evolved. How did it become called that? Where did that name come from, Jim? Back in, I think, about 1980, I was invited to a friend's house that they called the House on the Borderland. My partner, who became my partner, was showing, you know, old movies, black and white, rented a 16 millimeter projector, showed them in the house. And that's how we met. So when we were trying to pick out a name, you know, back at the time, everybody was, they had their peaches, strawberries, you know, licorice, pizza, all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. So we said, we don't want any of that. So we wanted something weirder. That's how we chose Plan 9. And when did the store open? And when did the one in Charlottesville open? 1981 in Richmond. And then uh, 1985 in Charlottesville. Give us a little rundown on what's going to happen when Catherine comes to town. Hope she brings a bunch of her books. And uh, we're going to have the two of you there to talk about it. But we're going to show the movie. We have a big screen TV up on the wall in the back. This is at the store in Carytown. Yeah, we couldn't really get the theaters on busy. And that's the beginning of the James River Film Festival. So we'll be included as a part of that. And then we'll just want to show the movie and then we'll just people can ask questions. Catherine can point out some of the, the cool, crazy stuff that will be obvious when they watch the movie. Right. <laughs> it's going to be a great event. I can't wait. This will be on Sunday, March 20th at the store in Carytown. Right. That'll be that'll be fun. How did you hear about the book or vice versa? How did you decide to do this little event? Catherine reached out to me and said, I've got this book. Would you like to do a signing? I said, sure. It'd be great. So I'll tell you a funny story about that before you go, Jim. My um, yeah. my in-laws, my mother and father-in-law are these lovely people, and they're very enthusiastic about my career as a writer. And they visited Richmond, Virginia, I think maybe six months before my book came out, because I knew that there was a passage in the book that was about the Plan 9 record store, I had long intended to reach out to you and ask if we could do an event together. Uh But Roy and Paula, when they went to Richmond, they stumbled upon Plan 9 records and they (laughs) went in and they said to the person behind the counter, oh, my daughter-in-law wrote this book about Plan 9 and you'll just have to get in touch with her. And I was like, darn it, you ruined my surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So I I guess that word of that didn't get back to you, Jim, and I'm grateful for it because my intention was to reach out to you myself. No, it was so great. It was, oh, wow, I can't believe it. So that was so great. Jim, thank you so much for surprising Catherine with your little drop in. We'll see you on the 20th, if not before. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you, Catherine. Yeah, same here, Jim. Thank you. So, Catherine, first of all, now that we're back to just you and me, what's your background? How did you decide to write a book? I am primarily a dilettante. Um, (laughs) And oh, so you're very rich. I am a very, I'm a, I'm a dilettante in poverty. I went to school for film and philosophy because my college wow. didn't have a film program. So I had to combine film with another discipline and that discipline was philosophy. And where was this? Uh, Mount Holyoke in Western Massachusetts. Right. I intended to be a director and of course that didn't work out. And I intended to be in a film archivist and then that didn't work out. And so then I decided to be a writer and for many years that didn't work out. But over time, I started writing more and more about film, got a graduate degree in writing. I just, I put those two things together. I learned as much as I could about film and about writing. And that's why I do both now. First, I have to ask you, because it says at the top, Midnight Movie Monographs. What is the difference between a monograph and a plain old book? 
A monograph is a single subject book, and usually they're a lot shorter and they tend to be about works of art. I think mostly in the Victorian era, they were about literature or maybe painting, um, but this one is about a movie. And Midnight Movie Monographs is a line of books. Each of them is about a cult film. If I was going to write a book about a movie, what movie could I possibly write 100 pages about? And the immediate answer was Plan 9 from Outer Space. So that's why we're here. You talk a lot in the book about how bad movies can inform the appreciation of good movies and even help young filmmakers learn from them. Tell me what your philosophy is on that. I love bad movies, by the way. Well, I love them too. And I, I think you just said it. The more bad movies you watch, the more you have an appreciation for how to do something well in film. My go-to example is always that it's very difficult to see what the work of a good boom operator looks like, but a bad boom operator, it's immediately obvious. Footnote. A boom operator works the microphone on a boom pole, usually above the actors, and it shouldn't be seen. But a bad boom might dip into the shot. I also think that, as especially as film critics, we tend to only watch this very small spectrum of extremely good movies right. instead of watching a whole very large spectrum of movies of all varieties. I don't think it's possible to appreciate how good movies can be if you have no appreciation for how bad movies can be. True. Now, you know, you're talking about bad and everybody talks about the bad acting in plan nine and some of it certainly is especially eros he's got that radio voice he obviously must have been an announcer before he was an actor you're right he's mostly a voiceover guy yeah you can tell you can tell <laughs> but you know it's interesting because i watched it the other night with my husband and i said you know a lot of these actors they're really not bad they're just kind of arch and the style of the period when we're talking late 40s and 50s it was kind of like that. If you looked at some of those actors, and some of them were terrible, but some of them were actually acting in kind of that style, not in the most naturalistic style, but they kind of had that 40s, 50s feel. Do you think I'm just full of it or do you kind of see what I'm talking about? I don't think you're full of it. I, I think that there is some degree to which the acting is sort of stiff and mannered because it was 1956 when they shot it. Right. But there's also a lot of acting that's just bad. Oh, yeah. And you say the movie is still watchable. Why do you say that? Mostly out of my own experience, somewhat out of the way that people that I've spoken to react to it. I just watched it two nights ago, I think, with two friends who had never seen it before. And they loved it. They thought it was such a delight that it was fun. I have always found that to be true. No matter how many times I watch it, I always have fun when I'm watching it. And that to me is what makes it watchable. It's interesting you say that because I've turned on a couple of friends younger than me who never saw Pink Flamingos. Mm. And it's not a bad movie, but it's an outrageous movie. And when they see that movie, it's still as shocking today as it was in 1970, whatever, when it came out. So it's fun to, to watch how people have those experiences. Oh, I mean, I would think one of the great pleasures of life is introducing young people to John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. You're right. You don't know anything. Just, just check <laughs> this guy out and not hairspray. Right. Not hairspray. So now there's a couple of interesting teacher things that I got out of this. The word diegetic. I'd never heard that word before. 
That is a film studies word. And it's a great word for stuff that's part of the film, part of the world of the film, as opposed to part of the fantasy of the film. So like a diegetic music would be music that comes from a radio or a band that's in the shot. You know, you can see the band performing or you can see that the music's coming from the radio. And non-diegetic music is like theme music, like the theme from Jaws or whatever music is scored or um, composed for the movie. Something interesting. I don't know if this was your theory or not, but it's a very interesting theory. The three L's. You know, I came up with that kind of on the fly, but I have, I mean, I'm sure that it's been said in other ways by other people who are smarter than me. Uh, It seemed like a good theory of how to make a film hang together. Absolutely. And why don't you tell people what those three L's are? I shall. It's lighting, location, and landmarks. So if the lighting changes, then you can guess that the characters are changing time. So if it goes from light to dark, then they've gone from day to night in the world of the film. With the exception of Plan 9, when sometimes it's daylight and suddenly the next shot is nighttime and it's supposed yep. to be right after. But anyway, yeah, that's <laughs> there's the example in that one. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Plan 9 violates all of these, which is why it's so useful to point them out. Location, you know, if you go from what's clearly the outdoors to what's clearly the indoors, then your characters are changing space. Um, And landmarks is how you keep track of your characters when they're in the frame. So if you walk by, I don't know, the tower in Trafalgar Square, and then another character a few minutes later walks by the the tower in Trafalgar Square, then you know they're going in the same direction or that they're in the same place in in space-time. As you said, in Plan 9, all of the three L's are violated constantly <laughs> because yeah, yeah. Edward does not know how to block a scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, of course, your book goes scene by scene and really dissects it and gets into a lot of detail. Do you have the movie memorized by now? <laughs> oh, what a good question. Um no. <laughs> I bet you can I, I, do a lot more than you think. I can do Chris Wells' monologue from the beginning. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Cool. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. And I kind of know what's coming and what's going up next. But because the movie is not linear, its narrative doesn't make sense in a straightforward linear way. It's very hard to kind of remember what happens in what order. And I thought there was an interesting point that you made that I'd never realized in older films, that it had to be a certain length. So if the movie wasn't that long, they'd just grab some stock footage and fill it out. That was the case in this movie. Mm -hmm. I haven't done very good research on this at all, but my understanding is because the drive-in market was such a big part of film profits in those days, I think you had to have a certain program ready for the drive-in. If you had two movies that were 50 minutes each, then that's not a program. That's, That's a double feature. That's just one movie in length. So it has to be, I don't know, 70 minutes in order to be build as a feature. So other than obviously Plan 9, the record store on March 20th, where else can people get the book if they can't be there or if they happen to be hearing this after that date? You can also order it on Amazon. You can also order it directly from my publisher at pspublishing.co.uk. Failing all that, if they want a signed copy, they can email me and PayPal me the cover price and I will mail it right to them. Those links will be included on the webpage for this podcast. And one question I always ask everybody before the show is over, 
What are you watching now? Actually, I am watching through the full run of The Kids in the Hall. Oh, wow. Um, And they're coming back, you know. Footnote. Kids in the Hall was a very funny comedy sketch show from Canada that ran in the United States on TV between 1989 and 1995. The five primary actors played most of the characters, often in drag, and it was notable to have one of the first out gay actors, Scott Thompson, sometimes playing outrageous queens. It'll be returning with eight all-new episodes for Amazon Prime, with all five of the original members who will be reprising fan-favorite characters. Plus, Amazon has the rights for the Kids in the Hall Comedy Punks, a documentary about the show and its impact. I'll announce them both in my Coming Soon section when they're released. I realized that due to the vagaries of syndication, I haven't necessarily seen all of the sketches. So I'm just going through one by one and watching it. And it is an absolute delight. It's bringing so much joy to my days. Where is it now? Where can you see it? What I'm is? watching it on Amazon Prime. Okay. Well, this has been fascinating and interesting. And of course, I've always loved Plan 9 from Outer Space, the movie. And now I have this wonderful signed book, which is wonderful. Thank you very much. I have been chatting with Catherine Coldiron, who is the author of said book, and will be in town on March 20th to sign copies at Plan 9. And we're going to look at the movie, too. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'll look forward to meeting you in about a week. Thank you, Jerry. God help us in the future. Now I'm going to pivot from what is probably one of the worst movies ever to the Oscars, which, of course, is supposed to select the best movies. The 94th Annual Academy Awards are airing March 27th on ABC at 8 p.m. And for the first time in four years, there will be a host, actually three of them, Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall. I am joined today for the first time with a guest reviewer, Victor Caressel. Welcome to Sifter, the podcast and the radio show, Victor. Thank you for having me, Jerry. First, let's get people a little bit of idea who you are. I know that you work at Capital One by day. Yes, I am a uh, HR analyst by day, but a film fan by night and aspiring hopefully eventually aspiring filmmaker. That would be nice. So we're going to talk about the Oscars, but not what you'd expect. Instead of expressing our opinions on each nomination, all of which we've both seen, we're going to weigh in on some of the snubs. Speaking of snubs, a number of the traditional categories have been eliminated from the Oscar broadcast this year. All the shorts, documentaries, animated and live action are out. Editing, makeup and hair, original score, production design and sound are the eight categories that are not going to be appreciated, which I can understand that because most people don't care about all that stuff. It's true. At this point, it seems like they're going towards the Emmy route where they have the technical Emmys and then the the regular ones. And they could end up doing that eventually. So let's start with probably the biggest snub. Spider-Man No Way Home, of course, did not get nominated. And there's been all this discussion about, you know, if you don't put some popular movies in there, the great unwashed are not going to watch the Oscars anyway. Uh, Academy has created this Twitter contest where you can vote for any movie, whether it was nominated or not, using hashtag Oscars fan favorite and the most votes by March 3rd. So by the time this airs, it'll be too late for anybody to vote will win. And three of the voters will get an all expense paid trip. This is of course the Academy trying to make this show popular again, which is may never be the way it used to be. I didn't think Spider-Man should have been in the top nominations anyway. Absolutely not. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of the year. It has far too many problems to be considered anything other than a visual effects nominee. I don't know what the answer to getting more viewers to the Oscars is, but this doesn't seem right. 
Another one that did get some nominations, but not Best Film, was Tick, Tick, Boom, which featured Andrew Garfield as playwright Jonathan Larson, who composed Rent. I thought he captured that character with playful energy and actually was surprised at his dancing and singing skills. It was an engaging portrayal that's full of heart and lots of appealing musical numbers. Yeah, I I thought it was a a fine movie. It didn't really stand out all the time, but I thought his performance was fantastic. It was one of the first times that I've really been impressed by him. Uh, Another one on that list of mine was The Eyes of Tammy Faye. It wasn't a great film, but I thought Of course, she did get nominated. Again, Andrew Garfield was wonderful. I thought it was an interesting film, and I thought it it should have gotten a little more love. I think I liked it just a little bit more than the general audience did. Again, I'm I'm not incredibly familiar with the story of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, but it didn't really strike me as something that felt very authentic, I guess. like It felt very dialyzed in a way that I don't think it should have been. It just didn't really strike that much of a chord with me. One of the foreign films that didn't get mentioned at all, and I think I know why, was Titane, the French film about the woman who had sex with a Cadillac. And then it got (laughs) crazier from there. I didn't love that film. It was like, what the? But I thought that director Julia DeCorno, after she did Raw last year, which I didn't love, but I thought... She's definitely a voice. She's got an interesting sensibility. And I think she's somebody that deserves to be watched because she's definitely got her own frame of reference for everything and she carries it off. Yeah, absolutely. I I think I liked Titane maybe just a tad more than Raw. I really did not care for Raw. Raw I still did not care for Titane hardly at all. I thought it felt like three different movies that were mashed into one and neither none of them were very successful. I, I really thought it had some pieces of good movies. It just was a third of three good movies. But that being said, I would love to see the next movie she does regardless. Matrix Resurrections didn't get any love at all. I thought it was actually good. I enjoyed it. I wish I'd seen it on the big screen. Yeah, I I regret having just watched it at home. Um, I think I would have enjoyed it a little more. Two movies that were kind of an interesting combination because they both involved the Sparks Brothers. The documentary, which I Mm -hmm. thought was fascinating and eccentric, and then the opera that they wrote, Annette, starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard, which was just very bizarre and very unusual, was really interesting. Again, I thought both of those, because of the Sparks craziness, were very compelling, even if they weren't totally mm-hmm. successful. I was not familiar with Spark Brothers at all. I wasn't either. This year. And, then, and I was alive during their whole period. Yeah. Well, and they're still going yeah, strong. Yeah. They first popped up on a podcast that I listened to. They were the, the musical guests on it. And then a week later, I watched the documentary, which was endlessly fascinating. I had no idea about their history at all and their connection to the, like the Prague and the pop music scene of the time. And then about a week after that, I watched Annette. And didn't even know that the Sparks Brothers were the composers for that movie. I was so, not confused, but just so bewildered by what Annette was. But I kind of loved it. Exactly, right. It's not great. It swings for the fences. Yeah. Now, you had a couple in your list that you wanted to run by real quickly, too. Yeah, so the main one that I was very surprised didn't get any love was The Green Knight. I I felt... I hated that movie. (laughs) In The Green Knight, Def Patel plays a knight on the quest for King Arthur, based on the 14th century poem. It definitely helps if you know the original story of Sir Gawain. I happened to read the the story right before I had seen it, so it was kind of fresh in my memory. And I'm glad I did, because otherwise I would have had 
no clue what the heck was going on. But just purely on a visual and sensory level, it was such a more interesting movie than so many that I'd seen this year that I I really thought it would get some respect of cinematography or editing or something. And it just got nothing. And I was very surprised. I think part of that probably was because people didn't like the movie. I mean, it was beautiful. Cinematography was wonderful in it. But the movie was just kind of, and it's interesting because you mentioned you had to go back and read that. The night I went to see it, everybody else in the audience was probably your age. They were under 40 Mm -hmm. for sure. And I said, why are you seeing this movie? And they said, well, we studied it in high school. Interesting. Okay. They understood it and I was lost. So uh, what's your next one there? The other one that I had was Mass. I was told by a friend to just watch it blind. Mass is a drama with two sets of parents. Two were parents of a son who was killed in a mass shooting and the others are the parents of the shooter. And this movie was just so powerful, I thought. I wouldn't have been surprised if all four of the actors involved got nominations. I didn't know that Martha Plimpton had this in her to be this kind of actress. I thought she was fantastic acting against, I believe it was Anne Dowd, and then uh, Jeremy Irons plays her husband. And then I do not recall the fourth actor's name. Um, This is just a classic four people sitting in a room talking movie. There was actually a fifth character who doesn't have a big part, but it was Michelle Carter, who is a Richmonder. She went to VCU and uh, she's a friend of mine. So that was kind of exciting. She was actually on screen and on stage at last weekend's Independent Spirit Awards, where Mass won the Robert Altman Award for Best Ensemble. That was thrilling for me, and I'm sure it was a lot more thrilling for her. Excellent. I didn't see the movie, and I apologize, Michelle, but I'm going to eventually have her on my (laughs) podcast to talk about that. So, Jerry, what was your favorite movie, regardless of nominations, what was your favorite movie of the year altogether? You know, it's funny. I might have to say this movie called The Trip, which was a Norwegian import. It didn't play theaters, but it played Netflix. It was dark. It was funny. It was violent. And I really liked it. What about you? What was your favorite of the year? It's either in and of itself or Bo Burnham's Inside. Uh I think Inside has more of a recency bias for me because I saw in and of itself right at the beginning of the year. But both are documentaries that I've recommended to every single person who has ever asked me this year what to watch. Comic Bo Burnham wrote, directed, recorded, and edited this musical musing in his home during COVID. Certainly put Bo Burnham on the map. Yeah, they're fantastic movies. I've memorized them. In the entire soundtrack, wow. confident in their performances. Just to be clear, in and of itself was not a Bo Burnham film, but it was a mind-blowing recording of artist-magician Derek Delgadio that really was incredible and was on my top list, too. What do you do for the Oscars? I actually maybe have one friend over, and I usually start at about an hour late so that I can fast-forward <laughs> through all the commercials. Unfortunately, a lot of the friends that I used to watch with have moved elsewhere, so I'll probably be doing some sort of virtual watch party with friends and family. Definitely, we will print out the nominee sheet and, and we'll do a, a tally of how many nominations we get right. Yeah, I think of my my best prediction ever, I guess it was 24 categories at the time. I think I got 11. I'm not very good at predicting. I never try to predict it because we don't know enough about the politics in Hollywood yeah. to know what they're voting about that we don't have any idea. Yeah. But anyway, this has been fun. This has been the first time I've ever had a co-reviewer like this. So, Victor, I want to thank you very much. I've been sharing this with Victor Coracell. Who knows, we might just do this again when it's time for the the Emmys. Maybe. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me on, Jerry. It was a pleasure. Coming soon. 
In theaters. I'm sure all of my listeners will be thrilled to hear about the live screening of the latest BTS concert, exclusively in Richmond at Movieland this Saturday night only. Also, for one show only on Saturday, Unsilenced at 4 p.m. at The Bird. This film is about the Chinese Communist Party's crackdown against its citizens and the people who work to expose the propaganda. It stars Sam Trammell and will feature a live Q&A with the director via video. Regular runs include Gold, not to be confused with the 2017 film with Matthew McConaughey, or the one in 2018 about an Indian field hockey team. In this movie, two drifters discover a large gold nugget in the desert, starring Zac Efron. The Exorcism of God, about an American priest in Mexico with a dark secret. Tyson's Run, about a young man on the autism spectrum who decides to run a marathon to win his father's approval. TV and streaming. Survivor starts its 42nd season on CBS. On Friday the 11th, Turning Red on Disney+. Plus. This is a Pixar film about a teenage girl who turns into a giant red panda every time she gets upset. The Adam Project on Netflix. Ryan Reynolds teams up with his younger self to confront his father. He also teams up again with director Sean Levy, who also directed his last film, Free Guy. The Last Days of Tommy Gray on Apple Plus, Samuel L. Jackson plays a dementia patient who's cared for by an orphaned teen. The second season of the sci-fi drama Upload premieres on Amazon Prime, and the Critics' Choice Awards will air on the 13th on The CW and TBS. For more Sifter, including literally thousands of reviews, visit tvjerry.com.